Now that was not Sarah. That was, Nath <laughs> that was Nathaniel. Good job. I'm going to take a risk here this morning, but Bruce, Bruce thinks I have good confidence that uh, for our scripture reading this morning, since we've been trying to memorize Hebrews 11, uh, the first three verses, I wanted to see if somebody would be willing to read it to us from their memory. So I know some of the youth have been memorizing it. So do we have a volunteer that will be willing to quote it to us? And make somebody's father day. I'm going to put somebody on the spot here. Actually, a couple of, can a couple people do it together? Who we got? All right, Steve Sinney's going to do it for us. <laughs> I might mess it up, but I'll try. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. <clears throat> the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Hebrews 11, one through three. Amen. I do, I do wanna get one of our youth to do it. So one of these guys back here are gonna do it for us. Which one of you four? Haddon, you got it? <laughs> no, <I'm just> <laughs> ben? <laughs> That's a devil. <laughs> okay. All right. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Amen. All right, we got some work to do. If you haven't been memorizing that yet. All right. All right, let me pray again and we'll look at God's word. Father, open now the eyes of our heart and may we see by faith things that we cannot see with our eyeballs. And may we embrace them as seeing them as better than all that this world has to offer. And that we would not live for the fleeting pleasures of sin, but that we would do the will of God and be the people that live forever. May we know that this world and its desires are passing away, but the new world is breaking in. Give us the eyes of faith to behold in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> C.S. Lewis talks about signposts in his book, Surprised by Joy. And what he means by these signposts is that there's things that will happen in this life, things where God breaks in and he speaks, and it's a signpost, a pointer to something incredible that points us forward, that there's something greater uh, ahead. And uh, those signposts come to us in different ways where we're kind of aware that, that there is a God and it's real, and it's, and it's not just revealed through his book, the book of his word, but through the book of his creation. And God is worshiped both as creator and as redeemer. And when you think of God, that's how, those are the big two things that we should think about God, is he's our creator and our redeemer. John Calvin wrote these Calvin's Institutes, and book one is the knowledge of God, the creator, and then he gets to the knowledge of God, the redeemer, 
um, in the later book. So um, in Revelation 4, we recited this morning, God was worshipped as creator. And then in Revelation 5, God is worshipped as redeemer. But he's both. And I think for me, um, you know, one of these signposts, a couple of them, I remember when I was in college just as a new believer and going off to school and, and one of the professors who really made a profound impact on me talked about his own conversion was going underwater. And I don't know if he was snorkeling or scuba diving, but just seeing a whole world of creatures underwater and realizing there's no way this can be by chance. And he was blown away. Um, I've been reading Francis Collins's book, uh, The Language of God, and he talks about these signposts in his own life. And one of them was looking for the first time through a telescope as a kid and seeing the glory of God in the stars. And for me, I can remember snorkeling and looking down and I felt like I was in a sanctuary, like, like I have intruded in a world where I don't belong and it was unbelievably quiet and I'm seeing all of these beautiful, huge fish some, and just schools of fish and you're like, it's like a sanctuary and I'm sorry for intruding, you, you know, like I didn't mean to intrude, didn't interrupt, guys keep going, like wow, look what God has done. Another one was actually just uh, going to um, Niagara Falls, and it was just the opposite. What blew me away was how loud it was. It was unbelievable. The water's crashing, and it was so deafening. Amazing. God's glory and creation. How about you? <clears throat> what are some times in your life where God has broken through with a signpost, and you're starting to see by faith that this world is not just time plus matter plus chance? Two men stand on the dock of a ship. They're gazing towards a far horizon. The one sees nothing, and the other sees the de details of a, of a distant steamer. <clears throat> the former only has his unaided eyesight. The latter's using a telescope. And just as that powerful glass brings home to the eye an object beyond the range of natural vision, so faith gives reality to the heart of things outside the range of our physical senses. Faith sets divine things before the soul in all the light and power of demonstration, and this provides inward conviction of their existence. Faith demonstrates to the eye of the mind the reality of those things which cannot be discerned by the eye of the body. That's Matthew Henry. What a great quote. The telescope and that faith is like you can't see those things off in the distance, but we can by faith embrace these things. And when you get to Hebrews 11, as we go through this chapter, it's like a kaleidoscope. And first verse one is not an exhaustive definition of what faith is. It's, it's the beginning of looking through the lens of what faith is. But in this kaleidoscope, we're gonna get a whole myriad of all the things that faith is. And you're gonna get different perspectives of faith, what it looked like in Noah's life, and Abe, Abel, and Enoch, and, and this morning we're looking at, at faith, this first by faith statement, there's a lot of them in this, but it's by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so we're gonna look at this idea of, of faith being a conviction of things not seen. The Old Testament is full of examples of what we might call 
naked promises, where there isn't any physical evidence that these promises should be fulfilled or would be fulfilled. Noah had probably never seen rain before, yet he believed a promise, a promise that a flood was coming. And so he built an ark in reverent fear. Abraham went out not knowing where he was going. He leaves everything. And he doesn't even know where he's going. He's simply obeying God's command. And Romans 4 tells us in hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. Yet he believed the promise. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith and gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So with an eye of faith, the men and women of old grabbed onto these promises of God like an alligator, and they wouldn't let them go, and they shaped their lives around these invisible future promises of God. It's a conviction of things not seen. And here this Greek word, hypostasis, it's two words coming together, prefix under, and then with the word standing. So so conviction or hypostasis is something that stands under something else as a foundation to a building. This This is our underlying worldview, that there's an assurance of things hoped for. There's a deep conviction that sees things that can't be seen with physical eyes. And then we're told in verse 2, for by it, the people of old, and that's the Greek word, and we like this word. It's the word Presbyterian, presbyteros. So by it, the Presbyterians of old, the elders, the people of old, they receive their commendation. And so the idea here is that they receive commendation and that God was pleased as they bore witness They attested to their testimony of faith that was in these promises of God, and God was pleased with these saints, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. So their witness, their testimony was based on this faith in the promises of God, and we could say, as earlier says in Hebrews, that they mixed the faith with the promises of God. And so, in verse 3, we see that faith begins with how we look at this world. And by faith, we believe that God spoke the world into existence. Albert Barnes, in his commentary on Hebrews, says, if this, vast universe, if this vast universe has been called into existence by the mere word of God, there is nothing which we may not believe he has ample power to perform. And so there's a strong connection in the Bible between our faith in God as a creator and a maker and then how that shapes our lives and how it shapes our prayers. We, we, there's so many verses. We, we were looking at a bunch this morning, but I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, what? The maker of heaven and earth. Psalm 121. Jeremiah says he prayed to the Lord saying, oh Lord God, it is you who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. We have problems. Do we remember who made the world? Hezekiah prayed to the Lord as, as, 
Sennacherib and his army have circled around him, and he's, he's what we would say toast. He's dead meat. He doesn't have a chance. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, and you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see and hear all the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. We should appeal to God as maker of heaven and earth and remind him of who he is when we appeal to him in our prayers. You're the maker of heaven and earth. Help me. We're reminded that it's by his power and by his wisdom that he could create the universe and then uphold it by the word of his power. And then when he rebukes us in Isaiah, he's saying how arrogant it is that we fear man. Listen to what he says in Isaiah 51. I am he who comforts you. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies and a son of man who's made like grass? And you've forgotten the Lord, your maker, who stretches out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth. And you fear continually all the day because of the wrath of your oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where's the wrath of the oppressor? You see, what he's getting at is how arrogant it is to fear man. When I'm the one who stretched out the heavens and laid the foundations of the earth, you should be fearing me. We need to come to God and remember who he is. And this faith goes all the way back to the creation itself. How did we get here? God said to Job, Job 38, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? You see, right from the beginning, we know that the scientific method goes right out the window because nobody was there to observe it. Any explanation of the universe is by faith. And even scientific premises that are based on, are based on prior convictions that cannot be proved and are ultimately assumed by faith. You may be here this morning and maybe you've kind of been indoctrinated in, in evolution and naturalism and Darwinism. Well, there's some implications that are, that are very disturbing about where these things lead. So for example, Charles Darwin's theory of evolution, what's really behind that and the underlying assumptions? Even he doubted some of, the, of his own assumptions. He says, the very theory of evolution cannot account for the reliability of our cognitive faculties. This is what, what Darwin wrote in his life and letters. He said, with me, the horrid doubt always arises whether the conviction of men's minds, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value or at all trustworthy. Would anyone trust in the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such a mind? You see, how do you know your senses aren't playing a trick on you? And if you truly were not to borrow from creationism and borrow from the, this idea that we can know truth, if you just land on that worldview by itself, you can't even stand on the assumptions or stand on the, on the ground that you're standing on. Darwin goes on to say, some, he's very chauvinist. So we only want parts of, the, of this worldview, but Darwin, in his view, he, he concluded that adult females of most species resembled the young of both sexes, and from this and other evidence, reason that males are more evolutionary advanced than females. Boy, this, this is, and it gets worse. He says, since humans evolved from animals and no one disputes that the bull differs in disposition from the cow and the wild boar from the sow and the stallion from the mare, 
and all is well known through the keepers of menageries, the male of the larger apes, the males of the larger apes and the females, the same must be true with human females. Further, some of the traits of women are characteristic of the lower races and, and therefore of a past and lower state of civilization. So Darwin concludes that men attain a higher eminence in whatever he takes up than can women, whether requiring deep thought, reason, or imagination, or merely the use of the senses or hands. If two lists were made of the most eminent men and women in poetry, painting, sculpture, music, inclusive in both composition and performance, history, science, and philosophy, with a half a dozen names under each subject, the two lists would not bear comparison. I mean, this guy is just unbelievable. We may also infer from the law of deviation from averages, so well illustrated by Mr. Galton in his work on hereditary genius, that the average of mental power in men must be above that of women. You still want to like this Darwin worldview? It gets worse. Not only was he unbelievably chauvinist, he was unbelievably racist. And this is the book that's being touted as the book to lead scientific study. And the, and the book is The Origin of Species. You know what the rest of the title is? The Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And so he says, I could show that the war had done and is doing much for the progress of civilization and the more civilized so-called Caucasian races have beaten the Turkish hollow in the struggle for existence, looking to the world at no very distant date, an endless number of lower races will have been eliminated by the higher civilized races throughout the world. And Darwin and Huxley argue further that the Caucasian race was further along in the evolutionary process and thus superior to all other races. You don't, that's the part we don't really hear so much. But that's where this is going, if that's what you're going to hold to. And there are reasons here that are even deeper of why to hold to naturalism. God is Not Great was a book that was produced uh, 10, 15 years ago by Christopher Hitchens. And he settles of why he landed where he did. He says, very importantly, the divorce between the sexual life and fear and sexual life and disease and sexual life and tyranny can now at last be attempted on the sole condition that we banish all religions from the discourse. And all this and more is for the first time in our history within the reach, if not in the grasp of everyone. So there's reasons behind this. It's the same reason that Huxley said in his book Ends and Means in 1946. He said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed it had none and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. The philosopher who finds not, no meaning for the world can, is concerned exclusively with a problem in pure metaphysics. He's also concerned to prove that there's no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. So the whole reason behind this is so I can have sexual freedom. If there's no God, there's no standards. John Paul Sartre, living out consistently his worldview, admitted that on the basis of his worldview, he had no right to say that Nazism and fascism were wrong. He knew it. And he knew that there, I cannot say they're wrong. If you believe in evolution, you cannot say that there's nothing wrong with ISIS. You have no basis for that. There's nothing wrong. It's dog eating dog. It's, it's just product of our genes. 
You see, it ruins this idea of the signpost. Even Charles Darwin, later in his life, as he lived out this worldview, he, he wrote an autobiography to his children. As, as he's getting older, he says, Formerly pictures gave me considerable pleasure and music very great delight, but now for many, many years I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I have almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight it formerly did. My mind seems to become a kind of machine for grinding out general laws of large collections of facts. Pretty sad. And Huxley said that science has explained nothing. The more we know, the more fantastic the world becomes and the profounder the surrounding darkness. You see, Francis Collins, his worldview began to break down as this brilliant man, brilliant doctor, brilliant in breaking the DNA or the Janine code. And, and, and he talks about what, what crashed with his worldview was, was an older lady who was dying. And she had this great faith in God. And she asked him, what do you believe? And here's this young, brilliant answer. And he, and he said, I'm not sure. He just felt like that's, that is really unsatisfying. And he, he said he was agnostic, and what he meant by I don't know is I don't want to know. And then he realized that he needed to, to know, and he started reading C.S. Lewis, which led him to start reading the Bible. You see, if we're to live out an evolutionary worldview, if we're to just put on the hat of the other side from it, it's very unsatisfying. It's very unsatisfying to say you're nothing but a pack of neurons. I mean, Francis Crick, the main discoverer of the, the double helix structure of DNA, writes in his book, he says, here's his opening lines. You, your joys and your sorrows, your memories, your ambitions, your sense of personal identity and free will are in fact no more than the behavior of a vast assembly of nerve cells and their associated molecules. You're nothing but a pack of neurons, says Lewis Carroll. He goes on to say, most of my students are very troubled when I tell them that love is on one level an evolutionary mechanism that ensures an inclination to invest in an individual to help maximize one's fitness, and on another level, not, love is nothing but a consequence of appropriate amounts of oxytocin in women and vasopressin in men released in conjunction with sexual satisfaction. I mean, have you ever seen that on a Hallmark card? I don't think so. You see, as Christians, we put on the, another hat, and we say this world, this worldview does not make sense. Darwinism, natural selection, macroevolution, it doesn't make sense for what we see. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and it separated the water from the waters. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, tre tr fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth, and it was so. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give them light upon the earth, and it was so. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creature, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, and livestock, and creeping things, 
and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, and in the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And we're told in Psalm 33, but that by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathered the waters of the sea as a heap. He put the deep in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants stand in all of him, for he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. And when you think about Psalm 33 and Psalm 148, which calls all of creation to praise him, the creation is often doing a much better job than one particular part of creation. It's humanity. They do their job. The animals praise him, and the, and the seas are called to praise him, and all these different things are called to praise him. That's where we get the hymn, all creatures of our God and King, and all these things are called to praise the creation because he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. They did their part. George Whitfield said the reason that the animals growl at us and make noises at us is they know. They know. They know who, who created the problem. They know who messed everything up. <laughs> they know who the problem is. <laughs> Chapter 11 here, verse 3, says that it, of what God has done, and it brings out this doctrine of ex nihilo, this idea that, that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And, and there's a verse in... In the Apocrypha, this is not inspired scripture by any means, but it's a, it's a true statement. Second Maccabees 7.28 says, I implore you, my child, look at the earth and the sky and everything in them. Consider how God made them out of what did not exist and that human beings came into being the same way. You see, God has made all these things. Stop and look at the flowers. Look at the delicacy of a tulip and the triggerfish, and the starfish, and the clownfish, and the sailfish, and the swordfish, and the Bengal tiger, and the saber-toothed tiger, and the, and the lion, and the, and the tiger, and the bear. The lion's mane, who made it? Who made the snout of the elephant? Who made the neck of the giraffe? Who made the claws of the grizzly bear? Who made the great rows of teeth and a great white shark? And who made the webbed feet of a duck and the beak of a pelican and the nimbleness of a deer and the drill bit of a woodpecker and the chain saw abilities of the beaver? Who made the kangaroo able to hop the length of a school bus? Who made the camel capable of drinking 35 gallons in 10 minutes? Who made the cheetah capable of highway speeds? Who made penguins with wings that enabled them to swim 37 miles an hour? Who made the savaka able to jump 30 feet to the next branch? Who made the sugar glider able to soar 150 feet to the next branch? Consider your human heart for a minute. Your human heart on an average beats 80 times a minute, 4,800 times an hour, 115,000 times a day, 42 million times in a year. And if you live to 70, that's 3 billion times. And this heart pumps six quarts of blood a minute. 87 gallons an hour, 2,100 gallons a day. That's a little backyard swimming pool every day. In a lifetime of 70 years, the heart pumps 53 million gallons. It would fill a super tanker with the capacity of 1,050,000 gallon barrels 13 times. Just one little small pound, one pound muscle about the size of two fists. Staying busy, isn't it? You know, at the Wrath and Grace Conference, the first guy got up to pray, and you know what he said? 
He just said, Lord, I thank you for existing. I thank you for existing. What, what are we doing here? We exist because he created us. What a gift that we exist. And God put us here on this, on this planet. You consider for a minute that there's flames right now that come off the sun. Sometimes they're 40 times higher than the entire dimensions of the earth. And God placed us on the earth and not the moon. And imagine if we lived on the moon, which would be the next best possibility to live in the universe besides, anywhere, besides the earth. There's a slight problem, though. It's called atmosphere. The moon ranges in temperature from 220 uh, some degrees during the day and then minus 280 degrees at night. There's over a 500 degree swing in temperature on a daily basis on the moon. No wonder those astronauts had to wear some serious million dollar suits, okay? And we complain about like a 30 degree variance in temperature, like wow, what a shock in temperature, you know? It went from 70 to 40 or something, you know? And we're shocked by it. Well, imagine a 500 degree swing in temperature. Francis Collins, a scientist who wrote The Language of God, he said, when you look at the, at, at the, from the perspective of a scientist at the universe, it looks as if we knew we were coming. There are 15 constants. The gravitational constant, various constants about the strong and weak nuclear force that have precise values. If any one of these constants was off by even one part in a million, or in some cases by one part in a million million, the universe could not have actually come to the point where we see it. Matter would not have been able to coalesce. There would have been no galaxies, stars, planets, or people. What are we to conclude? Alvin Plantinga has this great illustration. He's a philosopher and theologian. He says, imagine... A man who deals himself 20 straight hands of four aces in the same game of poker. And his companions reach for their six shooters and the poker's players, and he says to them, I know it looks suspicious, but what if there's an infinite succession of universes so that for any possible distribution of poker hands, there's only one universe in which this possibility is realized. We just happen to find ourselves in the one where I deal myself four aces without cheating. That sounds like a nice lofty speculative argument. You're gonna punch him anyway. <laughs> because you know that the guy is cheating. And when you say there's no God, you're cheating. You cannot account for it. Fred Hoyle in his book, Intelligent Design said, he said the idea that life originated by the random shuffling of molecules is as ridiculous and as improbable as a proposition that a tornado blowing through a junkyard would assemble a Boeing 747. Our response needs to be like Jeremiah's. Ah, sovereign Lord, you made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. You see, by creation... Burkhoff in his theology says, what do we mean by this? Creation in the strict sense of the word may be defined as that free act of God, whereby he, according to his sovereign will and for his own glory in the beginning, brought forth the whole visible and invisible universe without the use of pre-existing material. He's not like an artist that's using, okay, I've got, I've got, you know, uh, cloth and I've got paint and now I'm going to make a painting. He's got materials that he's doing that. God didn't do that. 
It says he did it without the use of pre-existing material and thus gave it an existence, an existence distinct from his own, yet always dependent on him. And we, one of the scriptures we read is that he says the creation's gonna wear out like an old pair of jeans. It's gonna be like an old garment. Psalm 102, it's just gonna throw those old, old Levi's in the trash can and keep going. That's what God says is gonna happen to this earth. And yet God existed before this world ever came to be and he will exist long after this world is done. So by faith, now he starts with creation because he's saying, think about where was God before the world's existed? He was there. And where's God gonna be after this world? He's still there because from yesterday, today, and forever, he's the same. And from everlasting to everlasting, you are God before the mountains were ever formed. From everlasting to everlasting, you're God. And so we will have to give an account to the one who's made us. And we have a chief end of which he has made us. And it's on the sign now out front. Glorify God and enjoy him forever. He's made us to make much of him. And so ultimately this creation is made by a person. This is not just some being that sets it in motion and it moves on. We are told that he upholds the universe by the word of his power and that ultimately it's through the son of God that the creation is being held into place. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And so Jesus is this authority, and Jesus shows up, and he can stand and look at these raging wind and raging seas and say, be still, and instantly it's stilled. And Jesus has the right to do that. He has the authority to calm storms. He, he, he exercises authority over the dead. He can say to Lazarus, come forth. And when the spoken word goes forth, Lazarus comes forth. And he can say to the guards who are coming to arrest him, I am. And when he says, I am, they all drew back and fell to the ground by the power of the spoken word. And there was this Roman centurion who understood it. And this Roman centurion who had a sick son says to Jesus just say the word and my son will be healed just say the word I'm a man under authorities and I tell others to go and they go and just say the word you have authority and and my son will be healed and they go back and they find out that's exactly when he was healed because Jesus says what faith he gets it do you get it Do you get who's running this universe? Because Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Because he's the Lord. And as Lord, God's authority, John Frame says, God's authority always implies his control by God's authority to command his creatures extends through the whole universe. He has the right to tell every creature what to do, even the inanimate ones. And so he has the right to speak into our lives and to tell us what's right and what's wrong. And he tells us, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news of the gospel. Christ has come and laid down his life for our sins. And he has the authority to forgive sins. Who has authority to do that? Jesus does. So put your trust in him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we are not left to chance. There are no accidents, no mistakes, no no maverick molecules in this universe. You are over all. 
and in all. And we pray that, Lord, we would make much of our lives. We pray for all the fathers here in particular. May we be those who fear the Lord, whose children would have a strong confidence. We pray that you would use this message, Lord, to remind us of who you are, the creator, and who we are, the creation. And may we not worship the creation, but you, the creator, for you are worthy. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.